And this morning, uh, we are joined by our dear brother in Christ, Tuvia Zaretsky, who I'm excited to say will be leading us in the study of God's Word this morning. Uh, Tuvia has been connected to our church for uh, close to 30 years, I believe, and he's one of the missionaries that we support as a church. Uh, a lot of you probably know him, but I know there's a lot of new people here, and so uh, you might not know him. And if you don't, uh, before I have him come up, I just want to uh, say there are three things that are most important about Tuvia that you should know. The first is that uh, he is Jewish. The second is that he loves Jesus. Um, and the third is that he serves the Lord uh, with the organization Jews for Jesus, where he is the director of Jewish-Gentile Couples Ministry. Tuvia has earned his doctoral degree in intercultural studies from Western Seminary. Um, as I said, he's been, uh, we've been partnering with him for, for many years now and, and with his wife Ellen and their ministry. Um, his relationship with us dates back to uh, probably the early 90s. And so uh, would you please join me in giving him a warm welcome as he takes us into God's word this morning. Thank you, Brian. Um, I'm blessed to be here. I've looked forward to this for a while. I couldn't believe it when I looked back at my notes. It had been about three and a half years, although we, we got together just before uh, the COVID outbreak. Um, and Pastor Matt and Brian and I had a chance to, to chat together then. But what a joy to be with you. I've got a, a real spe special place in my heart for this particular church. A lot of it has to do because of your commitment to the Word of God and your desire to, to make worship something very personal and real in your lives, and your relationship with God through Jesus the Messiah is more important than following some religion. And I also know that you've been encouraged often to share your faith outside in the community. So I, I'm really blessed to be with you, and I'm looking forward to encouraging our hearts uh, and um, hopefully to, to let the Holy Spirit inspire you in your life, in your faith, in your hope, and most of all, in the desire to tell others. I want to introduce a couple of, of uh, very dear people in my life. First of all, I want you to meet my wife, Ellen. Can you stand up and wait? Say, <laughs> my partner in ministry. And two of our um, younger missionary staff with Jews for Jesus, Lucy and Jesse Eshelman. Can you guys stand up and just wait for a sec? Um, and I'm, I'm really blessed to, to have a, a tremendous team that I'm working with internationally with the Ministry of Jewish-Gentile Couples. And if you'd like to stay connected with us and know a little bit more, um, uh, Mike asked me how things are going this morning, and I told him, I probably, after more than 46 years in ministry, I'm filled with more joy and having more fun than any time because I know I'm right where God wanted me. I thought... You know, maybe at this point in life and ministry, I'd be uh, checking out and, and doing something they call, they call retiring, not happening. Uh, and something really is exploding, and that is reaching out to couples where one partner is Jewish, and that's opened the door for an incredible uh, interactive ministry with those folks, and, and much, much more openness with the Jewish community now. I'll talk about that a little more uh, later on. But if you'd like to stay connected with us, um, there's an email at the bottom here. There's also a, a short... Um, link that you can use. Uh, it's also on that little outline sheet that you picked up this morning if you want. Uh, that'll take you to a place where you can connect with us, let us know you want to receive our, our regular updates. I send out a monthly update so that you hear not just about the broader ministry around the world, but the specific things that I'm doing 
with uh, our Jewish Gentile Couple Ministry, not just here in Southern California, but across the United States, in London, Paris, Germany, South Africa, and in the state of Israel. So if you'd like to know more about that, um, you can either use that little short code, uh, you can send me a, an email, or on the table as you go out this morning, there's a sign-up sheet. And if you take time to stop there, we'll, uh, I'll send you a little booklet that relates to the message this morning called um, A Roadmap to Christ and the Seven Feasts of Israel. So those are a bunch of ways that you can be connected with us. And uh, um, I'd love to be able to keep close contact with you. Now, right now, I want to pray for us as uh, we go to God's word uh, and, and ask him to, to minister to our hearts. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you love us. God of wonders, God of the universe, creator of all the stars and galaxies, and yet you are intimately involved in our lives. You are God with us. You created, created us to live in relationship with you, a relationship you call eternal life. I pray this morning that you would bless us, that you would bless us with a, a recognition of how close you are to us, how much you want to work and be in our lives, and how fruitful you want to make us. Lift the hearts of your people, Lord. Help us to see you dwelling among us and how we might be intentional about experiencing your fruitfulness in our lives. We pray these things looking unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I don't have to tell you, we all ex have experienced this last um, 18 months or more, some of those difficult times that many of us can imagine in our lives, not only for the personal challenges that we've been facing, but also this national challenge and the global with the global pandemic, Ellen and I have been talking about how deeply that affects us. Um, where God has, has created us as relational beings, we have been isolated, where he's created us to be connected with other people and, and touching other lives, we've been isolated. And yet God, from the very beginning, has said that he wants that relationship with us and and that relationship is intended to be very, very intense and personal. My Old Testament uh, professor, uh, Old Testament theology professor, Walter C. Kaiser, Jr., introduced this, this threefold formula that appears throughout the scriptures. And if you don't get anything else from me this morning, you'll see this on your outline sheet, but hang on to this. For from the beginning to the very end of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the Lord God creator has said, I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell among you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell among you. That was the intention of God in creating humanity from the very beginning. Not everybody hears this. Not everybody acknowledges it or even responds to it. But if you're one who know God in this sense, you've been blessed. And you can walk in that. And he encourages us to walk in it. Now, Israel, my people, had to go through kind of a Sunday school. Well, we, don't, we didn't call it Sunday school. It was just living with the Lord 
when our nation had been created as a nation, called as a nation, while enslaved for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And when he called us out of Egypt, you know, there were no synagogues. There were no rabbis. There were no Torah scrolls in those days. There was the word of affirmation from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the tribal heads as they went down into Egypt that God had made a covenant with our people. He would preserve us and he would live and work through us and manifest his name in all the earth. And then for 400 years, we were enslaved. Yet God had never abandoned us. He'd never left us. And his plan, the best of his plan, was yet to come. Keep that in mind. Any moment, any time that you feel like, I'm just a speck on a blue dot. I'm here in the midst of all these challenges, and the news is just driving me into a hole. God has not abandoned you and me. He has never abandoned us, and he never will. And if he seems far and remote, it's not because he moved away. He's with us constantly in every moment and extending himself to make our lives fruitful. And Israel was one example of how that was happening. For he called us out of Egypt, and the first thing he did after he saved us from the armies of the Egyptian pharaoh, brought us into the desert. Oh, that was great. <laughs> no Ralphs. No water uh, flowing through the Sinai wilderness. And yet he was going to provide for us. And he told us to put an encampment in the middle of our camp, a tent of meeting, a makom kodesh, a holy place. And he said, come to that place regularly for worship. And there will be sacrifices and there will be offerings and there will be prayers and there will be music. And all of that to remind us that God was in the midst of the life of our camp. And then during the years, he embedded on our calendar holy days to teach us about him. Seven holy days. Three in the springtime, one in the, in the midsummer, and three more in the fall. And the cool part of this is, this week... We are on the cusp of the start of those three fall festivals. And so I want to use the basis of those festivals to show you what God was teaching Israel about his imminence, his closeness, his uh, desire to be in connection with the Jewish people, to have a relationship with them at the center of his, their, their life in the encampment. And then I want to extrapolate that into our own lives. So those three festivals, as, uh, as they're stated in the scripture, um, fall festivals start with Rosh Hashanah, the blowing of the trumpet. By the way, in the Bible, it's called Rosh Truah, or Yom Truah, not Rosh, Yom Truah, the day for blowing the trumpet. Once the temple was destroyed, the rabbi said, what do we do with this, this holiday? There's no temple. The only place you can celebrate it is by blowing a trumpet from the parapet, the cornerstone of the temple. And so they changed the name of it to Rosh Hashanah and said it was the start of the new civil year. Only it's the first day of the seventh month, which is a little weird and uh, never could figure that out as a kid growing up. But it's the blowing of the trumpet. It starts 
this year on, two, on the Monday night with the blowing of the shofar, and then on, on Tuesday, um, people will be going, Jewish people who are observant will be going to synagogues uh, and, and preparing themselves for the, the year, uh, for the, the, the high holy days, the, the services during the beginning of this uh, false season. Initially, it was, call, it was um, given to call the people to come to Jerusalem to be with God at his holy temple. Wherever the temple stood, whether it was in the Sinai, we were to turn our face to the, the um, tabernacle. If it was in one of the places where it, was, uh, it moved once they came out of the wilderness, we were to go to that place wherever the Ark of the Covenant was that reminded us of the covenant relationship that God had with the people and his promises to preserve us, to care for us, to make us fruitful. Wherever we were, we were to go to that place. So when the trumpet blew, it was an alarm clock. It said, head to the temple, head to the tabernacle. We had two weeks to get there. Fifteen days later is when we had to be at the temple. And so if you started your plans to go up to the temple, uh, you gathered your crops, gathered your, um, some of your animals, for sacrifices, fruits, and vegetation. On the way, what if you realize you're going to God's house and there's something in your heart and your life that you know is broken and is a bit of guilt and shame? How am I going to face God with this in my heart? God, on behalf of his people, took it upon himself to demonstrate his forgiveness with a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And once a year... On the altar in the holy place, God said there would be a sacrifice that he would honor for every sin. All of our brokenness, all of our rebellion and disbelief, everything that we have said, done, or thought would be cleansed. That was the down payment on what would be a final and perfect Yom Kippur, which was at the cross of Calvary, when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, took away the sin of the world, back that day and forward for all humanity. I have Jewish people a lot of times say to me, so you're telling me that if you're saying to me that if I'm not believing in Jesus, I'm going to hell. And my answer, theologically, is uh, no. You're going to go to hell. I don't really say it this way. but <laughs> If you believe in hell and you think it's possible to go there, the only reason people go to hell is because of their sin. That's what condemned us in separation from God. Now, the way to have a relationship with God is to acknowledge that we're broken, we're sinful, and we need someone somehow to cleanse that because we can't do it for ourselves. And that's about a relationship. Very often, if, if you have somebody say to you, so you think I'm going to go to hell, first question, don't answer the question. Answer it with a Jews answer questions with questions, right? Answer with a question. 
do you really believe in a place called hell? About 99.9% of the time, the people who ask, ask me that usually respond, no. So why talk about something that's irrelevant? Let's talk about real stuff. So God, in his grace and mercy, gave a day of atonement as a down payment, as a, a picture of what he intended to fulfill our redemption, reconciliation, our renewal, the restoration of our relationship. God seems to like our, our E-words, doesn't he? Renewal, restoration. And then, after that tenth day, when all is forgiven, we have five more days to get up to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, it's the day of tabernacles, the day of Sukkot, the celebration for a week long where um, our people have these wonderful, glorious traditions uh, of community and, and food and, and joy and fellowship. Uh, and I, it's, a, it's a wonderful celebration. I'll describe it here in, in just a little bit for us. But So from beginning to the, to the end of Scripture, God has said his intention was to have a relationship with us and to call us into that living relationship and to teach us how to do that. And that's what he was teaching Israel. And that's why he gave these, these holy days for our people. So from, from the very beginning, the very beginning of, of time, we see God dwelling with his people. And we find that in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the, the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. And he commanded the man, saying, from the any tree of the garden you may eat, freely eat. And so they lived in God's garden. He dwelt with them. He loved them as, as a father. He spoke to them in absolute transparent candor. And they were without guile. They were in God's presence and felt a, at complete ease and welcome. And they heard him in the garden, and they enjoyed being with him as he walked through it. But in Genesis 3, it records the fall and the rupture in the relationship. You know why that happened? It was a natural outcome from the fact that in his loving kindness, God gave human creatures, you and me, free will. That free will opened the door for us to respond to his loving kindness and love him in response. After all, that's exactly what he wanted. The very first commandment that he spoke was love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your, your strength, your mind. Love the Lord. It was possible because we had a free will that was given to us. And yet that same free will opened the door to the possibility that we could be disobedient. We could choose not to trust him. And that in itself would rupture the relationship. God, in his, his grace, put Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Because if he hadn't, there was the possibility that they would eat of the tree of eternal life and be permanentized in that broken, ruptured relationship. And so they were banished from the Garden of Eden by God's grace. But God, in that moment, promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send the seed of a woman who would restore the relationship with him and that was the promise of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, who would be the, the Redeemer, the seed of the woman who would eventually come. 
So if God has a, says there's going to come a woman who's going to be the mother of that seed of the Redeemer, he's going to need a woman and a family and a tribe and a nation and a people, and he calls Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They go down into Egypt. As I said, for 400 years they dwelt there. The nation explodes, becomes nearly 2 million people. And as they come out of Egypt and they're in the Sinai wilderness, God once again says to them, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. And in Exodus 25.8, he said, Have them construct a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. And in Exodus 29, he says again, And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. It's always about a relationship with one who knows us, whose name we know. We can call upon him as our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us. A three-part formula from the beginning to the end. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. We have a tendency to forget things, and so uh, God embedded these, these festivals for our people so that we might remember him. And I mentioned the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is coming up in just uh, about 14 days now, 15 days now. Uh, and for that festival, um, God called the people to gather, bring their... Well, let me read the, the scripture to you, um, just a small part of it from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 23. You can read the whole passage from 34 to 42, but just this little bit. He said, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th day of the seventh month, so that's about 16 days from now, is the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days the Lord, uh, to the Lord. On the first day, it's a holy convocation to the Lord again. You shall not do any laborious work. It's a Shabbat, a day to rest, trusting in God. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. These are thanksgiving offerings to say to God, hallelujah, and thank you for your goodness, to remember all the things that he has done. And it's very, very easy to get caught up today in, in all the tough stuff that we, we hear about and read about. Um, and I won't enumerate them, just think of some of the, there's, there's a, a, a newspaper that I'm not subscribing to anymore because it just it was filled with bad news. And there are some, some things I just can't watch on the news. But I realized I need a balance, and I need to balance each day to say, God, thank you. Thank you today and enumerate blessings. Thank you for our marriage. Thank you for our children. Thank you for your grace and goodness to meet the challenges that we, of those that we know who are, are struggling with illness. Thank you for meeting our needs in relationships that seem to be strained right now. Thank you for that which I'm worrying about and I know that you will resolve for me. So for seven days, he said, bring these Thanksgiving offerings the Lord. And on the eighth day, this is the, this is the grand finale of the, the eight-day festival, 
You'll have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. It's the, like the 4th of July. It's the grand finale of the, this week-long festival. And you shall not do any laborious work again. The word here, um, to worship and work, is the same word in Hebrew. Work and worship. Same word in Hebrew. Avodah. Avodah. For our most glorious work is to worship God. And it's not, uh, not something to sweat over. It's something to rejoice in. So you, you've got to, uh, I'm not a, um, a meteorologist or the son of a meteorologist. Uh, my dad was an obstetrician, so I'm out on that one. But I do know what happens on the calendar. And I know that uh, on the day that this holiday begins will be a full moon. So just watch. Right now, we're at, we are at the lowest point in the moon cycle. It is dark out at night. But in two weeks, the moon is going to be full. And when you see that full moon, I want you to remember, this is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles and the joy of being with the Lord in, his, in the glory of his light, to give thanks and joy in him for all that he's done. So back, back in the, the Sinai and then wherever the temple stood, it was a, a week-long celebration. The people picture it. You're gathering with your friends from all over the country. You gather in one place. You live in tents all around the, uh, the holy place, the, the temple itself or the tabernacle. You're bringing fruits and vegetables that you're sharing. People are bringing um, animals that are being sacrificed. And there's a barbecue going on. There's a Levitical band, a worship band that's singing and playing. And you've got a party going on for a whole week in the presence of God, welcomed at his house, fully set free of any guilt and shame because your sin has been forgiven five days before by a perfect sacrifice for the entire year. It was a time of great joy. And then there was the culmination was a water-drawing ceremony. This is really cool. Um, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam. Remember where the, the blind man washed his eyes? You can go to that pool today. It was unearthed by archaeologists. It is south of the Temple Mount. You have to go through the city of what is biblically the city of David. It's now um, a mound of rubble and, and now homes built on that over the years by Mamluks and Greeks and Arabs. And the Jews are rebuilding the ancient city of David. They found the stairway under all the rubble that went from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the Temple Mount. And so the priests during this festival would walk down in procession with a whole group of Kohanim priests and Levites who were singing the Psalms of Ascent when they went back up, carrying large pitchers of water. And when they got back to the Temple Mount on that last day, they would pour the water into these huge brass basins that were perforated. And so the water would spray out of those perforations over the feet of all who were there on the, the Temple Mount Plaza. And there was a reminder that God gives us the rain to produce the crops and make our land fruitful. So there are, there are two very incredible 
themes uh, with this, this festival. Um, I'm going to go on to the next one. We have the little booths decorated with, with vegetation and, and fruits to remind us that God has made our land and our lives fruitful. And we dwell in these little booths to remember that God lives with us, that God dwells with us. This is where he said, and I will dwell among you. These are really fun. As you drive around um, West LA and Los Angeles, you'll, you may see these on the homes of uh, observant Jewish people, not even necessarily observant folks. Something that, that we used to do, I went to a, it was part of a, a reform synagogue in California. We would, would put these up at the synagogue and sometimes at our home and eat outside, have a picnic sort of. But the most important thing to do is, is to see this as, as fellowship with the Lord and to experience the Lord um, and to know that God in all of his grace has done two things. He said, I am Emmanuel, I am God with you. Emmanuel. By the way, my synagogue that I grew up at, Emmanuel, God with us, was the name of the synagogue. At the age of 13, I was expecting God to show up at that synagogue sometime. On the night of my bar mitzvah, when I was accepted as a, an adult Jewish practitioner of our faith, I went back into our, our sanctuary of the synagogue, because I'd said in Hebrew, with the words of Isaiah, Hineni, here am I, O Lord, send me. And I went back to tell God I was really mad because he was the only one that hadn't shown up in my bar mitzvah. And he was the one I really wanted to meet. Ten years later, he honored that prayer and introduced himself to me in the person of Jesus. That was a surprise. <laughs> but it was what I'd been created for, what you and I have been created to know and to experience. God is our Emmanuel, and he wants to make us fruitful by the work of his spirit in our lives and in our hearts. We sang hymns uh, at the temple. One of them is, was written by Isaiah the prophet. It said, Hine el Yeshuati, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord my God is my strength and my song. He also has become my Savior, my salvation. Twice in that scripture is a very important word. My father, once, when he found out that I believed in Jesus, was really angry. He said, how can you believe in that name after all that's been done in the name of Jesus? And it doesn't even appear in our Bible. And then they did a Bible study in Hebrew, and I found out that the name or the word Yeshua appears more than 139 times in the scriptures. See, in, in Jewish understanding, there's no recognition of Jesus as the Savior. His name literally meant, was in Hebrew, Yeshua. But the rabbis didn't want to call him Savior, which is what Yeshua means. And so they corrupted the name and made an acrostic out of it and a curse. And so people in Israel only know him as Yeshu. Yeshu. It's a terrible curse. The real name is Yeshua. And the word salvation, Yeshua, so the H on the end of it, means salvation. Yeshua is, uh, is Savior. Hine 
El Yeshua ti. Behold, God is my Yeshua. He is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord my God, that's Yahweh my God, has become my strength and my song and has become my salvation, my Savior, Yeshua ti, in Hebrew. Again, twice in that same thing, same verse. Later on, we sing, thinking of that, that water drawing ceremony, the words of Isaiah again, the very next verse. Therefore you shall joyously draw water from the springs of Yeshua. It's the Me'ayan Yeshua, the wellspring of salvation of the Savior. And so we have these beautiful, illustrative um, heri- uh, traditions embedded in the life, the biblical history of Israel, as a way to remember that God is our God, Yahweh is our God. He calls us to be his people. He wants us to respond to him and to know him and to walk with him. And he will dwell among us. Unfortunately, or sadly, um, our people kept these festivals only so long. Uh, and, and then the nation was carried away into captivity in 586. The temple was destroyed. The Shekinah glory departed, was seen to depart from that holy temple. And for the rest of history, that holy temple has not seen the glory of God except once. Now, our people kept the the festival. We kept the festival in the days of of Solomon when the temple still stood. We kept the the festival after the temple was restored by Herod but without the, the glory of God in it. Not until the person of Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem did the glory of God once more come to that city. And I want to focus on what he did when he celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. For Jesus in John chapter 7 comes to the city of Jerusalem. We're told um, in John 7 verse 2 that uh, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles was near. Remember it's What's happening when it's near? The trumpet is blown. Yom Truah, people hear the trumpet, they start to go up to Jerusalem to be with God. Ten days later, the Day of Atonement happens, and people are welcome at the temple. And then we go to the temple area, and we're there for eight days. So in verse 14, but when it it was now the middle of the feast, that eight-day festival, Jesus went up to the temple, and he began to teach. Now, we know a little of what he taught, because it's here in this this passage. We read in John 7, 37, during the feast. Now, on the last day, remember I said it's like the, the grand finale of the festival, the great day of the feast, the Hoshana Rabbah, the great day, the Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day. Jesus stood and he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What do you think was happening on that day? There was a water drawing ceremony. And the priests with pomp and singing and joy were bringing water from the pool of Siloam all the way up to the temple and pouring it out to remind us that God in his grace had made us fruitful by the outpouring of the rain 
and made our land and our lives fruitful. Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Maim chayim. Waters of life. But this he said in reference to the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And need I clarify that glorification ha happened at the cross as he poured out his blood for the sin of all, for all time. That's why he had to ask his disciples, stay in the city of Jerusalem until the Spirit of God comes upon you. And that happened on the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Pentecost, one of those seven festivals of Israel. It's an incredible picture that is fulfilled. If we understand the background of what's happening, the important thing is, is to ask, how is it that all of this touches us? How is it that all this makes any, any difference to you and me? This is a wonderful part of Israelite history, but let me just remind us what, uh, what has taken place. Um, God has, has changed lives. He is imminent. He is close to us, and he wants to come and touch our lives and to strengthen us in the face of challenges and in our isolation to remind us that we are not alone. As a, as a very young believer, I left the United States. I came to faith here in Southern California, and I thought I was the only Jew in the world in modern times to believe in Jesus. The only ones that I ever knew about were the ones I read about in the Bible, the Acts of the Apostles and in the Gospels. I moved to Israel, and while I was living there, I could not have been more isolated. I knew that my family was going to reject me, which they eventually did. Um, when they found out that I was a believer in Jesus. There in Israel in those days, it was uh, not very popular to, to be a Jew and say, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's changing. It's changing dramatically. But I, I uh, visited a, a mission home, and there was a, a wall plaque that took the words uh, from the Hebrew scriptures and those who were amplified in the book of uh, Hebrews. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. God has not abandoned us. He's not abandoned us in these days, and there are some people who think, you know, we must be on the ramp to the, the end of the age. I don't know. People ask me, are we in the end times? I thought that when I came to faith, and this whole group of Jews were coming to believe in Jesus. And that's several decades ago now. I was sitting in a, a Jerry's Deli up in the valley. I'm not sure, there's still Jerry's Delis up there? I'm hearing them. I'm sitting in Jerry's Deli with a guy who was an Orthodox Jew. His name was Howard Barr. Howard had come to a church not far from here where I'd spoken and had, had angrily, he did a bunch of stuff. He said a lot of stuff during the service and then afterwards tried to run me down with his car. About eight years after that, he sent me an email and he said he, he wanted to come and apologize. He had been working for those eight years in a pharmaceutical distributor 
among two women who were Christians, who had with all grace related to him and put up with, with all of his, his nasty comments about their faith and about their Lord, and had never rebuked him, had never been unkind to him, and had so touched him by their kindness and the work of the Spirit through them to him. And he saw exactly what it was. He understood what the Ruach HaKodesh was. He was not a believer yet. He asked me, first of all, if I would go and tell his son, who was, also, who was a secular Jew and rejected Judaism, about Jesus. This is a, an Orthodox Jewish guy. We had this gracious conversation. He apologized. He said, there may be something true to what you believe, but I can't believe it at this time. And as we were walking out, he said to me, Tuvia, do you think we're in the end of days? And I said, Howard, if I'm sitting here in Jerry's Deli talking to you about Jesus, we must be. God is doing some amazing things. And my brothers and sisters, he has the best yet to come for us. How do I know that? Remember I said, from Genesis to Revelation, He's never going to abandon us. He's never going to leave us. And he's going to make us fruitful every single day if we open our hearts simply and say, Lord, I'm willing. I can't do this on my own. That's why he gave us the free will. To say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I am just bent up like a pretzel. Open my heart and strengthen me. I trust you. God, I'm so, this might be a prayer, I'm so angry and frustrated with what's happening in this situation or that place, but God, I need your peace. Lord God, Holy Spirit, be the peace that I need. I can't manufacture that myself. I can't do it in my own strength. I can't accomplish it in my own will. He will. He can. Just like he can make the rain fall and you and I can't. He can pour out his fruitfulness in your life and mine. I know it because I practice it and have to. Because I see the, the shortcomings in my own character and ability. And you know what? Sometimes, some days I have to remember, why waste all that time worrying when you can pray, okay? It's a matter of, prayer is a matter of life and breath. We do know what happens at the end of time. In, in Revelation chapter 23, We're told, and behold, the tabernacle of God is among people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. I said in the, the very beginning that uh, at this stage in, in my life and ministry, I'm having more fun than I've ever had in rejoicing more than I ever had. I'm working with Jewish Gentile couples. Just last May, the Pew Research survey came out and said that the intermarriage rate in North America is 61%. The Jewish community has watched this happen since 1990, as the, the, the Jewish intermarriage rate has exceeded 50% now for more than 30 years. It is changing the nature of Jewry in America. And it is opening up the Jewish community in North America in a way that we have not seen in over a, a, a generation. 
And I am so blessed and thrilled to be participating in what God is, uh, is accomplishing. I wanted to do this for 18 years. And he was just saying to me, not, not yet, not yet. So now we have a, a website called Jewish Gentile Couples. The couple at the very top there is our poster kids. That's Sahar and Maria Sadlovsky. She's from Sweden. He's from Israel. I, I figure you could probably tell that already, right? Uh, and they are our, our poster kids. On the bottom, that's uh, Deborah and Teddy Lemma. They're both Ethiopians. Teddy was raised in an Ethiopian Orthodox family, and Devorah was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family that emigrated to Israel. She went through the military, and when she finished her, uh, her army service, traveled on a lark to Toronto, where she met Teddy, who'd recently become a believer in Jesus. And he, um, he shared his faith with her. She went back to Israel and found out that God was moving through her entire family as they were all coming to faith in Jesus. Haredi, religious Jewish people. They're now together and married in, in Canada with kids, both of them as followers of Jesus, a Jew and a Gentile, originally from Ethiopia. They're uh, one of the, the 15 podcasts on JewishGentilecouples.com. Again, if you'd like to know more about what we're doing, what God is doing in this ministry, there's that short code. You can sign up at the back table. Um, or you can send me an email, and I'll, I'll send those monthly updates to you. I'm going to bring us to prayer, then the Lord's table here in a moment. God said to us in the Old Testament and the New Testament, these words, For we are the temple of the living God. That's you and me, who are believers. And if you're not part of that community yet, let me just encourage you, you can enter into that relationship and that community this morning. Just take time to stop and talk to the people who brought you, friends who are around you, Brian, me, any of, any of the folks that you see here who love, love Jesus. And then here, the Apostle Paul just repeats the words that he grew up with 2,000 years ago as he heard them from the scriptures and embedded in our New Testament. For God has said, I will dwell among them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have shown your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Father, I praise you that you are with us and you've had a perfect way. Lord God, we acknowledge our, our sin through repentance, our brokenness, and our need for you. We cannot be and do what it is that you would have of us in our own strength. For only through you and your spirit can we accomplish your will. Lord God, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your fruitfulness. We ask that you walk with us in light and fill us with love for you in response to what you've done for us in the person of Jesus. And Lord, we yield ourselves asking, give our hearts the voice to say yes. For those who need it, to say yes to your salvation, to those who need you, 
Yes, make us your person through the power of your spirit. For in all of this, we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in, in uh, response to what our Lord has done for us, you take uh, those communion cups, and uh, this is a moment when, when we get to say with all of our brothers and sisters, we are one in the body, through the body that was given for us in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, who gave his body for us at the cross of Calvary, that we might participate through belief and faith in what he has done at the cross of Calvary to cover and take away all of our brokenness and sin and that which has been a barrier between us and him. This morning we do this together to say, Lord, thank you for what you have done for me and what you have done for us. And here's where our isolation breaks down. Here's where we come together with not only our brothers and sisters sitting next to us, but every believer across the globe who this morning reaches out in prayer and love for the Lord Jesus. Whether they are here in North America, across Europe, the Middle East, including our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, we give thanks for the body that Jesus declared on the night before he was crucified, told his disciples, take and eat this bread. As often as you do it, remember me. It was a Passover supper. The people were remembering that they had been set free from Egypt. And in that freedom, they had entered into a new relationship with the living God. And during Passover, Jesus takes what is known as the cup of redemption, the cup that remembered our release from slavery in the land of Egypt. And he looked at the disciples around that table and he said, you know this cup, this cup of redemption? This cup is it a brit the new covenant now in my blood. As often as you drink this, remember me and what has been done for us at the cross of Calvary. Let's drink together. Lord, thank you for your grace for bringing us together in your body. In all these things, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.